This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Fassel Syed, a board-certified family medicine physician. He's the National Director of Primary Care for ChinMed. I've had the opportunity to get to know Fassel over these last few months, and I just, you know, and of course, listen to his podcast with uh, Dan McCarter, the ChinMed podcast called Fassel and Friends, and he is someone that's a national leader in value-based care. He's out there thinking about leadership and education for primary care physicians. And of course, ChinMed is, Dan, I think a leading organization. It's always great to have them on the Race to Value. No, I 100% agree. ChinMed is a fascinating and wonderful example of what healthcare should really look like in our country. Their whole goal is to improve health and they don't make money if they don't improve health. And this is the reason they're expanding to, you know, 100 centers across 12 states and and they're really aligning with what physicians intended when they signed up to practice medicine in that they're caring for patients and it's all about this relationship between the clinician and the patient. Some amazing conversation that we have with Fassel today and I'm just ex- so excited for our listeners to hear it. Well, let's go ahead and hear it. This great conversation about physician culture and the value of healing relationships. So let's hear from Dr. Fassel Syed as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Fassel, I am really excited about our conversation today. Your practice of medicine and passion for preventative holistic care is really an inspiration to me. And here at the ACLC, we're true believers of the mission-oriented work at ChinMed. And of course, we're big fans of the Fassel and Friends Primary Care Podcast. So thanks for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Uh, It's so great to be here with you all. Well, Fassel, I thought a great place to start would be to better understand your background and personal why and how that connects to the mission of ChinMed. When you joined ChinMed in late 2017, it was Kismet because you discovered that this was an organization, organization that cared for the underserved in a way that truly values the sacred relationship between the physician and the patient. And you once described the ChinMed model as old-fashioned medicine with technology that treats patients like family. So I'm really interested in better understanding your altruistic calling for medicine and how the ChinMed model connects with that. As I understand, you wanted to be a doctor ever since you can remember, and you were deeply influenced by your parents, your Father was an inventor. He kindled a passion for innovation. And your mom, she had reverence for natural medicine. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. And you've had some really interesting experiences, you know, as a community doctor, you know, you've always had this calling to help patients regardless of their ability to pay. And you began a career practicing in rural areas of the Dominican Republic. And you've done some really interesting work. So I would love for you to maybe share with our listeners more about your innate passion for preventative holistic care? And how did your upbringing, you know, influence your calling to medicine? And and how does ChinMed offer you a pathway to practicing primary care in the way that you always envisioned? Yeah, you know, I, I was raised by an inventor. You know, my dad, he has over 20 technical patents. He's retired now and just fully enjoying my children. He's a full-time grandfather. I grew up in an environment where, you know, I always felt like there was nothing that was off the table. 
you imagine the early 80s, having a computer in the house, not only having a computer, but having a full computer lab. And he has patents like the patents for voice recognition, flash memory, caller ID, all that stuff. You know, at the time, the, there was a TV show that we used to watch as a kid, as children, called Knight Rider. And, and you, you know, there's a great show where you had the, the hero of the show is talking to the car, and the car is talking back to the hero. And it seemed like such high-tech sci-fi, but I was actually able to see that in our home, you know, growing up. So that, growing up with that type of technology definitely had an impact on me. Like, it, technology wasn't just sci-fi. It was something that was readily available. The idea to create things and make things, you know, growing up with my father and his friends, the group of them, they were oftentimes referred to as the, the think tank at AT&T Bell Labs. So that, there was a lot of influence from my father with the technology not being a barrier to our day-to-day life, but really becoming an ex- extension of it, being something that's available and it shouldn't be complicated. You know, it should be simple for the user. Now with my mom, my mom was on, on a different extreme. My mom was very passionate about natural remedies. I remember the way that she used to question the doctors. If we, got, if we had a diagnosis and even getting antibiotics, she would make her own remedies. You know, she'd make her own teas and concoctions that oftentimes hurt and burn, but, but they worked. They worked. We wake up the next morning and you'd wake up feeling fine. Uh, you'd go to sleep with a sore throat and wake up the next morning feeling fine. She would make things like if we had a cough or were congested, she would make a rub and we'd wake up the next morning feeling fine. I'm grateful for having the influence from both my father with the technology and the science, but my mother also, she was very gentle with us. She was open to natural remedies. And I remember the way that the doctors used to interact with my mom. You know, they were always patient with her. I know that meant a lot to her because she was concerned about what they were offering. It could be an antibiotic or whatever the medication was. And I remember those types of interactions. So my views on the doctor-patient relationship, you know, started from a young age. And and I, I feel like we should be able to restore that relationship with all the the resources and technology we have available today, you know, we can go back to that way of practicing medicine where the doctors had an intimate relationship with the patients. I remember when we were very young, we were still living in an apartment. My brother, who's a, a year younger than me, was ill. He was less than a year old. I was less than two years old. We had one car. My dad had the car at work. And uh, we were both very sick, high fevers, and my mom was in a panic. So she called the pediatrician's office and uh, the pediatrician explained to them the situation that, you know, she couldn't bring, bring us to the, to the clinic and pediatrician came to the apartment. Pediatrician actually came to the apartment and took care of us. She came with her doctor's bag and then went back to her clinic. Of course, at that time, the technology wasn't available. She was able to come and fortunately she was able to come and make a house call to look after us. But I see that with, with telemedicine and with a lot of the remote monitoring that's available today, we can still have those types of intimate relationships like we used to have. And it wasn't that long. We were just talking about 40 years ago. Vassal, I love that personal story and the connection that you're describing. This is a testimony that the power of the provider-patient relationship and the trust there and the caring that's there. This is what's needed to realign the medical profession with its altruistic calling. Of course, it's easier said than done. In a system that's predominantly fee-for-service and operates mostly under a reactive sick care paradigm, we'll never get to a healthy society only by addressing sickness. And today there's increasing consensus within the medical community that the social determinants of health not only have an enormous impact on patients, but that the role as clinicians must extend toward addressing those social determinants. But underpinning social determinants is another no less important problem that clinicians have which is a unique responsibility to address the moral determinants of health. And this is a term coined by Dr. Berwick in a JAMA article back in June 2020 that really had an impact on me. He talked about how in the U.S. at the moment, 40 million people are hungry, almost 600,000 are homeless, 2.3 million are in prisons and jails with minimal health services, 70% of whom experience mental illness or substance abuse, 40 million people living in poverty, And 40% of elders live in loneliness. And we have public transport in cities that's decaying. These statistics on hunger, homelessness, incarceration, and isolation that 
are things that we have a moral responsibility to transform. And I'm interested in your perspective on what role physicians play in leading change in these areas. Can you discuss your views on the leadership role that clinicians should play in building a new moral consensus? And how should this moral transformation align with the sacred nature of the doctor-patient relationship that you've been talking about and how we should deliver healthcare in this country? We start with the mission to honor seniors with affordable VIP care that delivers better health. You know, that's our moral consensus at ChenMed. You know, so for starters, we are a physician-led practice. I mean, I can't tell you how refreshing it is to have a physician who's at the helm guiding the way. Because there's a lot of things that make sense to doctors. But when you try to explain to a non-doctor about the little things, like the daily text messages to the patients, the weekly love calls, the weekly phone calls, we make to check in on them to make sure they're okay. It may not make the most financial sense to a non-clinician, but to a physician, of course, it makes sense. You know, these are the things that you've got to do to build trust. So we're physician-led practice, and we believe that everyone should have equal access to superior health care, regardless of their life circumstances. So as an organization, we go into the underserved communities. You know, if you think about the neighborhoods we go into, these are the neighborhoods that typically you see the federally qualified health centers, the FQHCs. That's my background. Prior to working at ChenMed, I worked at a very large federally qualified health center. And our average patient is over 70 years old, you know, 70, 72, depending on the market. So we view them, I mean, these are the pe- people who built the country. You know, they're the ones who fought in the wars. They're the ones who marched for civil rights. And sadly, many of them in the underserved neighborhoods are forgotten. You know, they're marginalized, they're ignored because keeping them healthy is really not profitable in the fee-for-service system. Well, Fassel, as you discuss the sacred nature of that doctor-patient relationship and this need for moral transformation, I just can't help but think about the importance of the work that ChinMed's doing and serving these patients in underserved and marginalized communities. When we look at this country, you know, we have a a gross domestic product as a percent of the overall global economy that makes us the richest country in the world. But we have this enormous disparity between the haves and the have nots. And that leads to all these societal factors that we listed earlier, you know, the the poverty and the homelessness and incarceration, the hunger. And there was a, a book that I was reading a while ago, The Health Gap, The Challenge of a Unequal World. And it was by an epidemiologist, Sir Michael Marmot. And he points out that the income inequality, like abject poverty, negatively uh, impacts health outcomes. And we all know this in industry, but he shows that health outcomes differ between rich and poor neighborhoods in a city, just the same way they do when you compare rich and poor countries. Like when you look at Baltimore, for example, you have a 20-year difference in average life expectancy between the wealthiest and least wealthiest neighborhoods. And it's the same gap that exists between women in India and in the United States. And another example to think about is the 655,000 Americans that die from heart disease each year. And in that book, he talks about if the entire population of the U.S. was free from heart disease, life expectancy would increase by four years. But that's barely 25% of the effect with living in poor urban areas. So, I mean, just literally the zip code that you live in is the is the ultimate determinant. He suggested a lot about, if we really want to address heart disease, the data suggests that we really need to go after the income inequality. And same goes for all the other chronic conditions, you know, lung disease and obesity and diabetes. So all that said, I was thinking maybe you could describe more about ChinMed's primary care model that goes beyond the clinical interventions to really address these important social determinants, which are often posed on a community based on these disparities in income. And, and, you know, how does that philosophy that that ChinMed has in driving, you know, these interventions in the community, how does that impact prevention and management of disease? We see it every day. You know, we see all these societal factors and our care delivery model, they're intertwined with each other because we completely understand that, Access to healthcare is completely worthless if your home situation is insecure and your food insecure. Understanding pathophysiology alone is not enough to improve health. 
You know, we know this. We know that anywhere from 60 to 80% of modifiable health outcomes are based on lifestyle. It's based on where you live, who you live with, what you eat. Do you have transportation issues or not? You can imagine when you're dealing with, with a senior population, they're living on fixed incomes. You know, our patients have on average five to seven chronic medical conditions. Many of them struggle with transportation issues. In the Tampa Bay area, for example, like a simple 15-minute car ride can take up to two hours using public transportation. We have centers in St. Louis where more than 90% of the patients rely on us for transportation services. So you can imagine all the other social issues you're dealing with on top of the pathophysiology. So in our world, a successful ChenMed doctor and their care team, they really need to look into the causes of all these medical issues, like based on their social situation. Like it's built into the exam itself. Even before the patient comes into the exam room while they're talking with one of our front desk people or one of our clinical people, so that by the time they come into the doctor, the doctor is able to incorporate all the social issues into the exam itself. You know, we know that influencing positive behavior changes so far as lifestyle is concerned, you're only able to improve the patient's quality of life if the social determinants support those modifications. We've reached a point now in the country where, you know, places like New Orleans, in New Orleans, we have centers in the zip code where the life expectancy is only like 54 or 56. Like one zip code over, the life expectancy goes up to almost 80. So you're right, you know, and you could probably argue that that zip code is probably one of the most prevention hesitant zip codes in the country. You know, in life expectancy in the United States, it's 2022. We're talking about life expectancies in the mid fifties. You're probably dealing with a, probably the most prevention hesitant, probably the most early intervention hesitant population. But you know, as a country, we have not crossed still 48, 49% mark with influenza vaccination rates with American adults. But our doctors in that zip code, the life expectancy is only 55, 56. You know, they consistently get 97, 98% of their patients vaccinated against influenza. That's what happens when you restore that doctor-patient relationship. When you believe that, you know, you're starting from a place that, hey, this is a sacred relationship. It was never meant to be the transactional one that we all know today. In fact, even the language in the fee-for-service model it's changing. It's changing towards a transactional language. You know, that doctors are called providers. You know, the, even the visits between the doctors and the patients, they're now called encounters. And I've even, I'm even learning of their health systems that don't even call patients patients anymore. They call them clients. So even the language of healthcare delivery in the United States in the transactional model, even the language is sounding more and more transactional. We got to stop that. We can take control of that and we can take it back restore that relationship. Basil, let's talk about another major problem impacting society's most vulnerable. Right now, one out of five Americans, which is about 51 million, are living with a behavioral health condition. And alarmingly, there are approximately 20 million individuals in the US with a substance use disorder. And 9 million people have had suicidal thoughts in just the past year. Of those with these mental health or substance abuse issues, Unpaid caregivers in minority populations are the most vulnerable. Although 70% of primary care appointments include problems with significant psychosocial issues, less than half of those primary care patients receive any mental health treatment at all. As a matter of fact, only 43% of suicide victims had contact with their PCP within a month of their suicide. Our nation's long-standing mental health crisis has been exacerbated, as you know, by the COVID-19 pandemic and other major societal stressors. And the need to treat mental health conditions is on the forefront in a way that it's never been before. And we think that primary care is the tip of the spear for treating that. Can you share with our listeners some insights on how ChenMed seeks to better integrate behavioral health in its primary care model? We don't think of primary care as the tip of the spear. We like to think of primary care as the center of a wheel. You know, we're at the center of everything that goes on with our patients, everything going on with it so far as mental conditions, emotional states, even spiritual, and, and including, of course, you know, the physical health. 
So since we integrate the behavioral and the mental health care into the primary care setting, it makes it easier for the patients to improve all their aspects of their health. You know, it's a, it's a much more holistic approach to healthcare rather than just a, a piecemeal or like a situational approach. You know, a critical part of our care plans, it involves, you know, you gotta stay tuned to, to how all their complex medical conditions impact their mental health and vice versa. You can't just look at it one way and, and, and not look at the other. And then you see when you incorporate mental health into primary care, then that removes a lot of the stigma associated with mental health issues. And actually when you overcome that, it's one of the keys to strengthening the doctor-patient relationship. You see, patients have feel it. They feel the transactional nature of our healthcare delivery system. It's hard enough to talk about the pathophysiology, say your diabetes or your blood pressure or your heart issues or whatever. But then when you start talking about something much, much more intimate, like say your mental health issue, if the time isn't there or if the patients don't feel comfortable, then you, the chances of you being able to address that as a primary care doctor is little to none, unless you make that the focus of your visit, which is very difficult to do when doctors in the transactional model are so concerned about generating revenue by billing. Well, Fassel, I wanted to go deeper on this concept of the intimacy and the sacred nature of the relationship between a patient and primary care provider and how that differs from the transactional relationship that we all too often see in these kind of fee-for-service sick care models. And you don't have to be a person of faith to know that the doctor-patient relationship is, or at least should be sacred. And, you know, I mean, if you look back ever since shamans, you know, sought methods yeah. to heal men and women in their tribe, whether it was through experimentation or natural remedies or spiritual ritual, the relationship between the healers and a society and those in their care was, has always transcended transactions and it, and it became something more. But in the United States, we've essentially jettisoned this whole sacred doctor-patient relationship and, and we let the business of fee-for-service take over and no matter how much we claim, you know, it seems that we believe in sacred nature of that relationship and pay it lip service, you know, this system that we've built on fee for service, it inherently pushes doctors and patients towards the transactional and this transactional economic based relationship, it's antithetical to the sacred one. And it's, it seems like it's perhaps this historic role as a healer which is responsible for the high esteem that we see in the general public when it comes to trust that they place in, in physicians. You know, a Gallup poll that was released last year, it showed that nurses and physicians are one and two, respectively, amongst all the professions in, in ranking honesty and ethical behavior, but they also improved their rankings during the pandemic. So I found that interesting that there's still a level of trust, even though a lot of us that have seen the underbelly of fee-for-service know that there's so much more that can be done to foster better healing relationships. So I wanted to explore this more with you, Fassel, around how the ChinMed model really approaches relationship-based care. Can you describe more about that model and you know how does this type of enhanced relationship that you're able to achieve with your patients improve adherence to care plans and improve clinical outcomes? You know, I remember when, when I joined ChenMed, I joined ChenMed as a primary care doctor. I really wanted to live the model and experience the model as a full-time physician. And one of the first things I felt when I was able to have these types of deep relationships with my patients, it felt like just like a marriage. In my marriage, my wife is the first person I go to with any kind of problem in my day-to-day -day life. Our patients actually look at us the same way. You know, if they're constipated, they call me. You know, if they, they stub a toe, they call me. If they can't sleep at night, they call me. And I know that may sound silly because we're all used to this, you know, this sterile transactional process with people in the healthcare delivery system. But actually, you know, this type of relationship that's built on trust and actually, and the common goal, of course, you know, staying healthy. So our patients, they want their doctor's opinion. They want to hear from the doctors and members of the care team. These people are the ones who know them better than anyone else, you know, and we want it that way too. I remember 
feeling so betrayed when I found out that one of my patients went to the emergency room without talking to me first. I couldn't believe it. And I, I called the patient that Monday morning. I said, hey, you know, you went to the hospital. Is everything all right? Why didn't you call me? And she said, she said, no, Dr. Sayed, I, I didn't want to bother you. I know you're busy with the kids and all. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, that's, that's a time when I really, when you need me, that's a time when I need you to call me so that I can try to help you. If there's anything I can do to avoid you going to the emergency room for something that I couldn't prevent it, you know, because we feel responsible for our patients. So when you feel responsible, then you start looking proactively at the entire health spectrum. You're not reactive or after the fact. You go to any marriage counselor, the counselor will tell you that, hey, okay, both of you need to work together. <laughs> you both got to commit to the goals in order for this counseling to work. And actually, the same thing goes in our delivery system. You can't just have the doctor telling the patient, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got And the patient's just kind of sitting there going, uh-uh, uh-uh. You, know, you, need, you, need, you need both the doctor and the patient to set the goals for whatever the situation is. You know, okay, we set these goals. Okay, hey, we're going to commit to these goals, okay? And we're going to work this plan together in order to get to the goal. And let's say if a patient needs to go see a specialist, you know, no patient gets referred to seeing a specialist unless it's absolutely necessary. You know, that would be just like me telling my wife, hey, you know, go to someone else to fix our baby. Fossil, for providers not practicing in a model like Chen Med's, medical practices far removed from the mission-driven spirit of yesteryear that you described. And these cultural virtues you talk about are centered around sacredness, the patient relationship, and they're being replaced as insurers and administrators are exercising greater authority in how medical care should be delivered. For a profession that was once a calling for most and now has become a job for many, according to national surveys, it's one that half of all doctors wouldn't even recommend as a career. So this shift is important to understand because the attitudes and feelings of doctors bear directly on the way that they treat their patients. And since doctors often believe that demonstrating emotion is an unacceptable sign of weakness, they pay a steep price with their mental health. And based on national studies, doctors are twice as likely to take their own lives as the general population. Roughly 15% of physicians struggle with depression and 20% report having suicidal thoughts. It's been projected that burnout is affecting over half of the physicians in practice. And a recent Harvard report even called burnout a public health crisis that urgently demands action. Some physicians are even going as far as to say that profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient in describing the pain that they feel when the system prevents them from doing what's right and forces them to inflict harm on patients so that they themselves are experiencing a form of injury. How does Chenmet's culture allow physicians to fully embrace the altruistic reason why they entered into medicine in the first place? And can you explain how Chenmet helps physicians overcome that significant misalignment of intrinsic goals with the realities of practice that we see elsewhere in the fee-for-service industry? And how does your culture serve to address the very important issue of physician burnout? There's a famous I Love Lucy episode that sums up physician burnout perfectly, especially in the primary care space. I don't know if you remember the one where Lucy and Ethel, they went to go work in the chocolate factory. The job was like a very simple job. You know, you've got the chocolates are coming down the conveyor belt and you've got Lucy and Ethel, they're each wrapping each piece and then they're placing the piece back on the belt and then off, you know, the chocolate went. You know, in the your typical fee-for-service practice, the patients are kind of delivered to the doctors in the same way. Like there's this constant parade of patients that are coming through the exam room. The doctors spend a few minutes with them and then off the patients go. And, you know, like Lucy and Ethel, like the doctors end up finding out that the bosses, you know, in our case, the hospitals, insurance companies, you know, they actually over the years kept speeding up the belt and they, they were pushing more patients through the exam room. That's the culture of the fee-for-service system. This is that system, it, it creates this like treat them and treat them kind of environment. And that leads to physician burnout. So with ChenMed, our priority is to influence our patients to make positive choices that lead to better health. And for the doctors, the nurses, and the care teams, you know, when you have that type of an approach, it fulfills that purpose. You know, it reminds all of us why we became 
doctors and nurses in the first place, you know? So it's fulfilling for us and it's also better for the patients. Our patients, they wanna feel better and they wanna have a better quality of life. And we as doctors and nurses wanna help them. When you have doctors actually joining us from that assembly line mentality, for many of them, and I remember for me too, it was just like pulling back the curtain and letting sunlight come in. I told you earlier, you know, we're a physician-led organization, but everything we do in our organization is designed by doctors. It's implemented by doctors, and even doctors are the ones who are checking and inspecting. We feel that doctors must be innovative, you know, in, in order for the healthcare delivery system to restore better health, to restore the sacred doctor-patient relationship, and really for many of us in healthcare delivery to restore that sense of purpose in all our lives. None of us went to school to pursue these careers and these callings to get caught up in the business of generating billing for profit. Well, I think you're spot on there, Fassel. And I can't help but think about not only the assembly line mentality that physicians feel in a a fee-for-service medical industrial complex, if you will, but there's also this cultural hierarchy that's an outgrowth of that fee-for-service business model where you have the income disparities in our society, and we have those same disparities in the profession of medicine. You have those that are on the the very top of the, the earnings potential where you have these specialists and they're doing the most emergent life-saving procedures like cardiac surgeons and neurosurgeons. And then you have the next level, which are physicians that are doing some of the more complex procedures like transplants and cancer and trauma surgeons. And then you have general interventional specialties like gastro docs and orthopedists. And then at the very bottom of what seems to be almost a caste system, you have primary care. You know, I, I took a trip to Cuba years ago as part of a like a research delegation. And one of the things that this is what got me into value-based care. I saw that 80% of their doctors were primary care and 20% were specialists. And, and here in the U S it's almost the exact like flipped opposite. (laughs) Yeah. It's the opposite. (laughs) So I, I know that's a reason why you have a lot of the primary care physicians that, I mean, they're frustrated, they're marginalized, There was an article that came out recently in the International Journal of Health Services, and they had some research that the study was called Primary Care, Specialty Care, and Life Chances. And they they did a multiple regression analysis, and the researchers concluded that having more primary care physicians in a given geography correlates with lower mortality, fewer deaths from heart disease and cancer, and a host of other beneficial outcomes, of course. And we all know that. But what was interesting is they also found that the more specialty physicians you have in a given area, the greater the probability of patients dying sooner. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, you know, I'm just thinking, Fassel, since, you know, primary care is the foundation of a more cost-effective, prevention-oriented, relationship-based system, it seems like there's a need for primary care to take lead in the value movement. You know, here at the Race to Value, we're always talking about this movement to value and how we need to obliterate a lot of the the legacy thinking. And, and, that, and part of that is the cultural hierarchy that we have in the medical profession. So I'm just really thinking a lot about like, you know, I, I look to you as a national leader and, you know, primary care transformation and the great work that ChinMed's doing, you know, how can exemplars like ChinMed serve to reposition primary care in the national landscape? And then just generally speaking, for all our primary care physicians out there that may be listening podcast, you know, what can they be thinking about how to be more of a driving force for the future of medicine so we can counter you know, some of this high intensity specialty intervention that we have that's so pervasive in the current fever service landscape? It's all about influence and leadership. You know, and the primary care doctors have to get it. The CEOs and all the administrators who are leading like fever service today, they're generating all the revenue and profits that they were all hired to generate. You know, I, you know a lot of people say that the fever service system is broken. In fact, really, it's not broken. You know, the fee-for-service system is doing exactly what fee-for-service was designed to do. You know, it's designed to profit from reactive or sick care. And the fee-for-service leaders, they've mastered this art of how you gain influence that you need in order to maximize the profits in that system. The primary care doctors, we must gain the influence before 
we can become this driving force for really anything. And right now, our doctors, our primary care doctors are, you know, you have different levels of influence. And many of us are at the lowest level of influence, that positional level of influence. So when you think of positional influence, it's all about, I'm the doctor, I've got the credentials, listen to me. This works in places like the military, but it doesn't produce better health. <laughs> you know, the ability to influence others, it's like, it's the beginning of transforming the healthcare landscape. And that now, that's called permissional influence. Right now, primary care doctors have very limited influence opportunities. You know, maybe you have two visits per patient per year. At my previous job, we weren't even at two visits per patient per year at my previous FQHC. The hospitals are dominated by sick care. So they rely on this positional approach for, you know, this is a doctor's orders. So primary care doctors, we need to be the disruptors. We got to be the change agent. But first, we must become better influencers. Then we can start to modify the patient's behaviors to generate better health outcomes. Fasil, I really appreciate your comments there because, you know, it's so important that value-based care is not just a, a flash in the pan. It's here to stay. And the latest Deloitte survey of U.S. physicians predicted a forthcoming shift, and they emphasize this, that it's no longer something organizations can choose to do as a pilot or an alternative to fee-for-service. Rather, it's a critical part of any healthcare organization's short and long-term strategy. And a piece of this that's so critical that I think is missing is that medical education currently is not designed to teach outcomes. It follows the same systemic design of our system that it's transactional. Medical students and residents, they're not learning skills or being exposed to environments that prepare them to thrive in value-based care. They're spending the majority, if not all of their time, learning how to operate in this fee-for-service world. And medical schools and residency programs teach and train students in the fee-for-service model because the majority of programs are sponsored by or partnered with hospitals that practice that model. For residency programs in particular, Sponsorship is based on downstream revenue for the hospital, and residents see patients in outpatient clinics and then refer patients to specialists, request expensive testing like CT scans and MRIs, or recommend hospital procedures to address their issues. Some of the revenue generated by that additional care is then used to subsidize the outpatient residency program. And then the cycle begins again. And your colleague at Chen Med, Dan McCarter, is the National Director of Primary Care Advancement, and he wrote a blog recently, where in it he says, if we want to prepare tomorrow's physicians to operate in an outcome-driven, value-based healthcare model, then immersing them day after day in the RVU approach is exactly the wrong way to go. Unfortunately, this is what continues to happen, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on how medical education can produce more value-based care physicians. How do you think medical schools should approach development of their curriculum, and how does ChenMed approach its own physician training to create a culture of excellence that supports superior value-based care outcomes. Right now, most of the training programs are, are feeder systems for the fee-for-service system, like you said. They develop future doctors to kind of fit in the system. We're learning about interns and residents learning CPT codes, for example. I was shocked to learn that internal medicine, family medicine residents are learning billing codes. And when I asked why are they learning billing codes, we said, well, this is what the demand is in the market. And when they go back, when they graduate from the program, they're expected to know how to bill. And so then students and residents, they quickly learn that, you know, hey, we're, we're rewarded for developing like the more logical parts of our brains. And then you, you kind of suppress or, you know, put away the emotional and the relationship-based parts. So like in medical school and residency, you know, IQ Trump's EQ every single time. But here's, here's what you miss with that mentality. You know, no one showed them like these higher levels of influence and no way, no one told them that, hey, you can lead the change you wanna see. You know, they may stumble onto it on their own, either through, you know, like your own personal discovery or adversity, but, but they're not aspiring to anything greater since they don't even know what they don't know. So at, at, at Chen Med, we actually have to retrain our doctors. We ask them to shift their mindset 
and engage the more emotional and relationship parts of our of their brains. You know, we ask them to, you gotta, you gotta develop trust. We make them responsible. You gotta be accountable for the results rather than racking up as many transactions and building codes as possible. So you gotta keep the patient panel small, you know, so they don't feel like, you know, we don't want them to feel like Lucy on the assembly line. We, we provide them with all the, the personal fulfillment and the professional opportunity. You know, that's what produces the superior health outcome. Fassel, I'd love to understand more about the business model at ChinMed as a high-touch, relationship-based, tech-enabled primary care practice. I mean, your practice delivers personalized primary care to seniors. It's known for having a scalable approach. I mean, the outcomes are outstanding. I mean, you've had you know, 50% fewer hospital admissions compared with the standard primary care practice, 75% reduction in ED visits, 28% lower per member costs, and a significantly higher use of evidence-based medications. And I know ChinMed really encourages patients, as you mentioned, to see the primary care doctor frequently and offer walk-in, same-day appointments, door-to-door transportation, on-site meds, healthy lifestyle, exercise. You even have balanced classes. You do urgent home visits. You give your cell phone out to patients so they can call you before they go to the ED. I'm really fascinated about this. I know our listeners want to know. I mean, obviously that makes sense, right? Okay, everything that you do, everything I just described, everything that you've been talking about, it nurtures that trusting relationship between the patient in the care team. But, you know, one thing we haven't really gotten into is, you know, how do you enable that? And I, I know ChinMed does that from a like business model being uh, aligned with being fully at risk, you know, with your Medicare Advantage pl- plan partners, and they transfer that risk to you. And that enables you to do all of this extra benefit and because you're thinking more holistically. So I wanted to see if you could help our listeners understand how financial risk for accountability and outcomes, how that can actually lead to enhance profitability and better patient outcomes. Yeah, you know, we're a full risk value-based care provider. So we are fully capitated. We only partner with insurance companies that'll give us the full risk. So for us, full risk is like full responsibility. You know, we assume all the responsibility. So if the if the quality of the care is expensive, that's on us. If it's complicated, it's on us. And Probably most importantly, if the patients don't understand what they must do to live the life that they're meant to live, then that's on us too. So the model succeeds by building trust and focusing on all the waste. Like, and, and most of the waste in our healthcare delivery system is with these unnecessary hospitalizations. Of course, you know, there's a lot of unnecessary non-interventional specialty referrals. Yes, that, that's there. That drives the waste. There's a lot of overprescribing of brand name drugs over generic equivalents. Yes, you know, there's a lot of waste there. There's a lot of unnecessary imaging and tests that are ordered. That's there, but really drives the waste in our healthcare delivery system in the country is the unnecessary hospitalization. So we're not effective or profitable unless we keep our people, our patients healthy. Like even if they feel okay, our goal is to try to make them feel better. So you gotta make sure they're eating well. You You know, I remember early on in the pandemic, we were buying toilet paper for the patients. If that's what it takes, you know, we get them access to all to the different support centers. You gotta, you gotta look into the causes of the causes and fix them. You gotta do whatever it takes to help the patient. So it's not a check the box system. Like it's this, it's this active, engaging, dynamic system that's with everyone on board, everyone in the healthcare delivery team, from even our housekeeping staff. I had a member of our housekeeping staff that convinced. A patient that said no to me for a flu vaccine, she walked the patient back and convinced the patient to get a flu vaccine. So it's an active, engaging system that's focused with everyone on board to improve health. So, you know, we started now, ChinMed is almost 40 years old. So we've learned how to replicate this model in low to moderate income neighborhoods all across the country. And now we have it where basically each center is the one who's driving the model at the local level. So it doesn't matter if you're in South Florida, which is where we started, or now we're, you know, we've moved out to Texas and Michigan this past year. I'm excited about the growth we've got for 2022, Uh, but it doesn't matter where you are. Each place has its own sort of flavor of the full risk model, but it's all based on what we've learned over almost 40 years of practicing in this way. 
Well, Fassel, it's a, it's a great story. It's a storied history and it's inspiring to see the growth. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, you guys are really the, the exemplar when it comes to doing value-based care right and, you know, demonstrating those exceptional outcomes that are resultant from that trusting relationship. And you referenced the, some of the growth. And, you know, when we started our podcast, you were, you were saying there's so much, you know, new, new things happening. And, you know, we had Gordon uh, on the podcast last year. And I think around that time, you were around, you know, 60 centers in 10 different states. And, you know, he was saying, you know, we're going to have about 80 centers in operation in the near future. And, you know, we're going to triple in size in the next five years. And then we're going to quadruple in size over three years. And I was wondering maybe if you could provide, you know, our listeners with an update on just how the organization's growing and able to, to replicate at scale, you know, maintain the foundation of that relationship and, and create that high tech primary care model where you can go into different markets and have the same outcomes as you open up new centers? Yeah, it's exciting. Right now we're in 12 states. We have um, almost 100 centers in 12 states. This year we're looking into going into at least three or four more states. The company has quadrupled in size since I joined, so that's incredibly exciting. It's incredible what happens when you help fulfill purpose for people who want to help make a difference in the patient's lives. Our doctors and care teams are working with some of the most medically complex patients in some of the most vulnerable neighborhoods all across the country. And, you know, really that's where the need is right now. And we're unique because, you know, we, we give doctors also another way to fulfill your purpose and professional opportunity. But we actually develop doctors into mentors, coaches, business leaders. You know, they end up channeling their passion into helping influence residents and young doctors, new doctors, even you know, the next generation of healers. You know, we, they're, they're all in all these cities across the country. They're creating their own mission-driven organizations. And it's so exciting to see that. You know, we, we're looking for good doctors. We're looking for doctors who want to remember why they went into medicine in the first place, practice medicine. They thought that they would practice it before they, they got gobbled up in the fee-for-service world. I'm a community doctor. I, I joined a large F2HC right after my residency training. And, you know, if you're like me, you always imagine what ideal healthcare looks like. And I, I feel that Chicken Med del delivers ideal healthcare. So if any doctor listening, if they want to learn more, please join us on this incredible journey. And our goal is to transform healthcare delivery in the United States. Basil, I wanted to wrap up today by building off of some of the things you just said and talk about the physician leadership in times of uncertainty. If doctors want to have more influence in the future of healthcare, as you suggested they should have, the first step is to rise above the positional level of influence to higher levels that will allow them to lead change that they want to see. And this is what I love about the physician culture at Chen Med. It gives them a space where it's okay for doctors to achieve these higher levels of influence. And Gordon Chen recently posted a video on LinkedIn talking about this, and he mentioned that this need for physicians to conduct self-discovery. He talked about doctors giving themselves permission to be open and curious about themselves, that they can develop better listening skills, more empathy, and the ability to change their behaviors. Then they'll be able to align their actions with their ideals and take the first step to higher levels of influence and healthcare leadership. As a national leader in primary care transformation, can you provide our physician listeners with a perspective on how they'll need to approach leadership in this new era of transformation in the years to come? You know, leadership in healthcare is all about influence. So if the doctors gain the influence, then you can create this track record of positive health outcomes. Then you can inspire other doctors to follow like, what you've learned. And then, and then you can help create that change in healthcare that we all we all want to see. It takes a mindset shift. You know, the, the doctors must be more concerned with health outcomes rather than the RVUs. They have to create this culture of physician leadership development. You know, and it goes beyond, beyond the practices in the towns that you're living, even probably the states that you live in. You know, we, we must expand our minds and think about patient care and health care much more broadly. And I believe that doctors can do these things. And and I believe that we already have a movement of doctors who believe they can do these things. And now that we have this movement, I believe that we as doctors can help change the world. 
Well, Fassel, it certainly seems that, you know, you're doing your part there at ChinMed and, you know, changing the world. I know you guys even won an award from Fortune magazine in 2020 on, you know, being named to the change the world list. And it really does come down to the impact that we make in people's lives. And it comes down to, I think, with what we talked about today, the importance of having a trusting and sacred relationship with patients, having a physician culture that really does create that level of leadership influence, and then having the power of the healing relationships. You know, Fassel, I can't thank you enough for being on our podcast. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners as we close out for today? If there's any physicians out there that are looking to join a, a model like yours or maybe interested in joining ChinMed, how can they find out more about your organization? We're a mission-driven organization. We help the people who need it the most, you know, the poor, the sick, and the elderly. I mean, this is the greatest generation. The, the patients we serve, these are the people who built the country and they have fallen through the cracks. We believe that they deserve better, they've earned better, and we're committed to delivering better health. In our world, we believe that health equity equals social justice. And our model of healthcare delivery makes up a very small percentage of the healthcare delivery system. So the more that we can spread this full risk mentality and the shift towards this results-focused delivery system, we feel that we can create much more social justice. Please visit chenmed.com. We have, we have excellent blogs. We have a lot of information there to learn about career opportunities, as well as educational information to help with that mindset shift that needs to happen from this transactional system that we all know today to one that's more based on relationships. Well, thanks, Fassel, again for joining us, and uh, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure spending time with you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.